Well, it's good to see you all gathered here this morning. Let's just bow together now and we will come to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before thee in the name of thy blessed Son. We rejoice that on this thy day we're privileged to meet and gather together for the purpose of studying the word, of hearing from thee, of being taught in our minds and hearts by the Spirit of the Lord. And for this we earnestly pray, we ask, O Lord, that Thou wilt come near, Thou wilt bless us as we assemble. We thank Thee for another Lord's Day and for the privilege of gathering together in the house of God right through this day. O Lord, we come before Thee in the name of the risen Christ. We thank Thee for His incarnation. We thank Thee for His sinless life, His atoning death, His resurrection, His ascension to glory. We rejoice, O Lord, that we're not met around some particular nativity scene or some image of Christ. But Lord, we rejoice that we by faith see Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. He is seated at Thy right hand. He is risen. He's victorious. He is Lord of all. He is God over all, blessed forever. O Lord, we approach Thee with gladness. We pray that Thou wilt meet with us even in this adult Bible class. We pray for the help of heaven Pray, Lord, for the instruction of our minds and our hearts. We ask, Lord, that Thou wilt come very near and minister to us in this time together. Lord, remember the Sunday school as they meet. Bless our brother Glenn as he brings a word to all the young children as they gather together. We pray that Thou wilt help them and bless them and use them for Thy glory. Remember the morning and evening gatherings. O Lord, come down in power, we pray, and give us help even by the Spirit of the living God. We confess our need of Thee. We're bankrupt without Thee, and yet we come to the One who is able to make all grace abound toward us. And may we know that grace um, abundantly shed over our hearts and filling our minds and souls. O Lord, shut us in with Thee, we pray, and bless us now as we continue before Thy holy throne. For we ask all of this for Christ's sake and for His eternal praise. Amen. Amen. We turn, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 8. I welcome you and those online as well. We welcome you. Glad to have you tuning in and joining with us uh, on this Sunday morning. So Romans, chapter 8, and we want to read just the first part of this chapter, beginning at verse number 1. Romans 8, verse number 1. <clears throat> There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin, in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And we'll end there knowing that God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. I want to focus your minds today really on verse number four of this passage. In this verse, the Apostle Paul has a purpose in mind. Of course, that's always clear. In Scripture, there's always a, a purpose and a, there's a goal in the mind of the writer as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. 
What Paul is doing in this particular verse is to show that a certain objective and obstruction regarding the law of God made the birth of Jesus Christ indispensable. Now, the objective that's in view was that the demands of the moral law would be met in order to secure the salvation of guilty sinners. Notice how verse 3 continues on into verse number 4. And in verse 4 it says this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's the objective that Paul clearly spells out, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now the word righteousness means requirement. And so Paul writes here of the law's requirement. That is the moral law of God, the requirement of that law. And the objective of it being fulfilled with regard to our standing before a holy God. And so the requirement of the law is that there would be a fulfillment of righteousness. It says it there, that the righteousness of the law, the moral law, might be fulfilled in us or for our sakes. is what is meant there when it says in us. And actually, uh, the words in us really refer to the fact that we're in union with Jesus Christ, and therefore, it is actually seen as if we have fulfilled that law perfectly because of our union with the Savior. And so there's the objective that's clearly spelled out in these wonderful words. But as I've also said, in these verses, there is, a, there is an obstruction that is presented to us. For look at verse number three, and notice how it begins. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak. Then it says this, through the flesh. Now those words spell out what I call an obstruction. They're to be understood with regard to the objective that we've already noticed here, that is the objective of the law being fulfilled with regard to our standing before God. But there's an obstruction to that actually being brought to pass. And the obstruction is simply and very seriously, the inability of man to give the obedience to the law that the law requires. And the result is that the law, therefore, cannot give eternal life, the eternal life that it truly promises. And so, there is a, an objective set, set out here by Paul. There is an obstruction spelled out by the Apostle Paul. And I want you to understand that. I know we're in the early stages of this study, but it's important to set it up. We're thinking about the Lord's birth. We're thinking about the incarnation, even at this time of the year, more than any other time of the year, for the simple reason that our minds are fixed on the fact the Lord did come at a certain time, whenever it actually was, we don't know. But since many minds are focused on that, well, it's a good time to think about it. So why was the Lord Jesus Christ born? He was born to fulfill the objective and to remove the obstruction. It's as simple as that. But it's another way of understanding why Jesus Christ had to come into this world. The law had to be fulfilled if men were to be saved, and in fulfilling that law, the Lord therefore removed the obstruction that's found in man's own inability to keep that law. And that's very simple. But it's another way of seeing what the incarnation is all about. You see, the law of God does promise and does offer eternal life 
upon the condition of perfect obedience. And it would bestow that life if man were able to give the obedience that the law requires. But you see, that's the point. The sinner cannot give the obedience that the law demands. And therefore, the law is obstructed by our sin, by our weakness in our flesh because of sin, our inability to give the life, to give the obedience that it demands. Therefore, the law is obstructed in giving us the life that it promises. It's important to stress, of course, there's no defect in the law. And we need to get a hold of this, brethren and sisters, always. The law of God is perfect. The law of God requires perfect obedience. If you and I could give that obedience, the law would save us. That's a fact. Some people don't understand that. They think that the law is some kind of uh, a trap or that the law of God is meant to uh, leave us in a hopeless state. No, there's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is what's wrong with us. And what's wrong with all humanity. When I say us, I'm talking to you in this room and those online. But it's true of all humanity. There's something wrong. There's an inability that is the result of sin. And therefore, the law is obstructed in giving that life to sinners that it actually promises. The law still promises life to sinners. Never the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the rich young ruler who came to him and said, what must I do to have eternal life? The Lord immediately took him to the law. He said, what does the law say? And he quoted some commandments. And so he was actually essentially saying, the law will give you life. But the problem with the young man was he didn't understand that he couldn't keep the law so as to gain that life that the law promises. And so the law still stands and it still offers life to sinners. And there are some sinners who think, of course, they can gain that life by their own efforts. And they do all these things and they seek to work out merit with God. But of course, it's all in vain because they cannot give the obedience that the law requires. The law's, man's inability to fulfill the requirement of the law is well summed up in the shorter catechism. In question 82, it asks this question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And if I was to throw this open now, who could answer that catechism? Well, let me tell you what it is. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the law, or to, sorry, to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And that is a very accurate, a very clear answer to that question. Is any man able perfectly? And notice that word perfectly. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer, of course, is no, absolutely no. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, for one thing in these verses here in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, and that is why, based on the inability of man, the birth of Jesus Christ was imperative. It was, it was absolutely required. And we must get a hold of that today, that the birth of Jesus Christ was not uh, brought about, it was not purposed by God in isolation 
from man's need. It was at the very bedrock of what man needed. It was at the very foundation of what man needed. And because God so loved the world, fallen men, sinful people across the nations, He sent or He gave His only begotten Son. And therefore, it's the law that requires the birth of Jesus Christ. In terms of that law being fulfilled, if anybody is ever to be in heaven, it was so sad that this elementary fact of the gospel and the Word of God is, is not even taught anymore. It's not understood. It's not presented. It's not set forth. There's all the talk about love, about baby Jesus. And that's fine. He was a babe. He was born in that form. And there's no doubt about that. And we preach that and we rejoice in that. But there's never any explanation given as to why God in His love sent His Son. And the reason, of course, is the inability of man to keep the law. So that's what you have in these two verses on their surface. You've got an objective. The law must be fulfilled. That's the objective. But then there's the obstruction. The law is obstructed by man's inability. And for that reason, well, read the verse again with me in verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending, there's the birth, there's the incarnation, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. Now, there are five things in that verse that I want you to notice, and I'll go through them as quickly as I can. But they're very important little points that we have set before us. Number one, Christ's sending, He was sent. God sending His own Son. That's a very basic feature of the incarnation. We don't have to dwell long on that. The sending of the Son by the Father. But what's really emphasized by these words about the sending of Jesus Christ is that they ring with the truth of divine intervention. God sending His own Son. That is intervention. That is the Lord stepping into human history and sending His Son and, and having the Lord Jesus Christ take our humanity and all that was involved in the incarnation. And so remember that man is lost. We've been pointing this out, underlining his inability. He's stricken with inability. That means that he's lost. He can't do a thing to save himself. And therefore, God sent His only begotten Son. And so, when we think about these words, what we've really been shown is that since the law's penalty for disobedience stands, that means that man's position is hopeless. He neither can give the obedience that the law requires, nor can he escape the consequences of the disobedience that he, of which he is guilty. And both are true. And therefore, man's state is utterly hopeless. He can't obey the law, but he can't escape the consequences of not obeying the law. That's how hopeless the state of man is. But into that desperate situation, God sent His own Son. There's the light, there's the beam of mercy that stands in these wonderful words, God sending His own Son. Now, the ascending of Jesus Christ, of course, is an historical fact. It happened at a certain point in time. The Lord 
came. He was born of Mary. He did so in order to take our human nature. That's all historical fact. The gospel is based on facts of history. And this is one of them, that there was a moment when the Savior was conceived in the mother's womb. There was a moment when he came forth from her womb. All of that is historical fact. Paul says in Galatians 4, so well known those words are, uh, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. And so we are dealing with the fact that God set a time in human history in which the, in ho- the whole course of his redemptive program was going to be enacted. That redemptive program that he had purposed and planned. And therefore, this act of sending Christ is a sovereign act. If God had simply decreed from all eternity, I'll pass all humanity by, that would have been just. If he had left the whole human race to go to hell, which is what we deserved, that would have been just. God's judgment is just and righteous. And if he had implemented that judgment that we deserved, he would not have been doing anything more than what we deserved. And yet, sovereignly he purposed, I will send my son to save sinners. It's a sovereign act. It's also a supernatural act, this sending of Jesus Christ. Because it all came about through the blessed Son of God being conceived, or His humanity being conceived in Mary's womb, and His coming into the world, and that means that was a supernatural act through the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 3.16 sums it up. God was manifested in the flesh. There is the miracle of concerning which there is no greater miracle, a sovereign act. The significance of that act is that's the measure of God's love for sinful men. Scripture stresses that the sending of Christ by the Father is the standard by which we measure His love. And again, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so there is the sending here. But then there's also the sinlessness. And this brings us to some words here that we need to understand very, very carefully. Look at verse 3 again. It goes on to say in the, toward the end of the verse, God sending His own Son. Now notice this. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And those words are designed to underline to our minds the sinlessness of the Savior. Now, we need to examine the words. There are many general statements in Scripture that show that the Lord Jesus Christ took our humanity, and we know them. John 1 and verse number 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Or Hebrews 2, 14, where it says, He took not on him the seed of Abraham, or so he took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. It's clear, it's plain throughout the Bible, the fact that the Lord's humanity is real, it's a true humanity, is set forth everywhere. In other words, he didn't take a different from humanity from yours or mine. It is the very same humanity. But here is a detail. 
that Paul spells out in a remarkable way. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's the sinlessness of Christ. That's what it's saying. Now ponder those words and endeavor to understand them. The word for likeness means being the same. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ, been sent by the Father, came in our flesh, our humanity. In other words, the very same humanity, as I've already emphasized. But the point is, he did not come in sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That makes a difference. So read the words carefully. Does it say God sending his own son in sinful flesh? No. But in the likeness of it. And so what Paul is saying is, we are true, we are real human beings. And that takes us right back to creation. God made man. He made them male and female. And so humanity was created by God. Humanity, essentially speaking, is the handiwork of God, like everything else in creation. A human being, every time a human being is born, is brought into the, into the world, into existence, by the act of God. Now, I know that the acts of men, even in the procreation of children, are, are immersed in wickedness. If you take young people living together and a child comes along, that child is born out of wedlock. That child is born in the context of immorality. But that's a real human being. That's why the argument that's used to try to support abortion is so wrong. That is, when that happens and, and a young girl gets pregnant, and the, 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 the advice always says, well, well, get rid of it. Abort it. That's how they're advised. But they're striking at what God did at the very beginning because God made humanity in his own image. That little child is not even responsible for what the parents have done in terms of the conception. And the solution for man is just get rid of the child. Have an abortion. And we're all aware of that. And we're grieved by uh, all that man is legislating in that arena of things. But the point is, humanity is a real entity. God made the human being with a body, with a soul, with all the faculties, with all of the capabilities that he gave that, uh, gave at the very beginning. And here's the point. Jesus Christ has a true humanity just like yours or mine. If that is not true, he cannot save us. But the difference is this. He was made in the likeness of that humanity, which is a sinful humanity, but without sin himself. And that's spelled out by those words, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice this carefully. He came in the flesh. He came in a true humanity, but the humanity was without sin. He did not come in sinful flesh, only in the likeness of sinful flesh. He appeared, in other words, with the same nature as those he came to save, but he had no sin of his own. And in these words, Paul, as it were, he's going out of his way to present 
the sinless and the impeccable humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not merely say that Christ was sent in the flesh, though that is true, but rather the statement goes farther. Christ's humanity was the same as ours apart from sin. That's the vital thing. In other words, only on that basis could people be saved. Do you think about this? Where is such a person going to be found? A person who's truly human like you and me, but who has no sin of his own. Where's that person going to be found? And of course, we search all humanity in every generation since Adam fell, and there is no such person. And the Bible spells it out over and over again. And this is the wonder and the miracle of the incarnation of our blessed Redeemer. He did come in our likeness, but not with our sin, not with our fallen nature, not with anything that even has the faintest semblance of sinfulness or corruption, not at all. If you turn to Hebrews 4 verse 15 and look there at the words of of Paul as he writes to the Hebrews about these matters, well, that's not his main subject, but he he certainly touches on what I'm saying to you. Hebrews chapter 4, and look with me at verse number 15. It says, "For For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And always remember that in a statement like that where you have two negatives, a double negative, that turns a statement into a positive statement. It says, we have not, there's one negative, and high priest which cannot, there's the second negative, be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. So how does it read? We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's Paul's great thesis here. That's what he's writing about. We have a great high priest who knows all about us, who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Then he goes on to say this. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. What Paul is doing there is guarding the impeccability of the Lord's humanity. And he puts it this way. He's saying essentially the Lord's humanity is the same as yours. It's the same as mine. Sin accepted. What he's saying is when taking the Lord's temptations, they're mentioned there, tempted in all points like as we are. Think about that. Every sinful temptation was thrown at Jesus Christ. But what did it prove? It proved his impeccability because there was no response in Christ to those temptations. Do you think about that for a moment? When you are tempted, something rises up in you to respond to those temptations. Now, in the Christian life, that should become a, that should be less and less, and it will be less and less as we grow in grace and are being sanctified by the Spirit. The temptations of the world will not mean much to us as time goes on, less and less as time goes on. But think of your unconverted days. It didn't take much to bowl you over, did it? didn't take much to take you into the pub or wherever you frequented. didn't take much at all to have you fall. Just a little temptation and away you went. 
And do you know what I'm talking about? And even after becoming a Christian, you know, there's a struggle with the flesh and a struggle with the world and temptations come and we feel them and we often, in our own thoughts at least, we respond to them. Even though it grows less and less the more we're sanctified by the grace of God. But when the devil came against Christ, for example, the Bible says clearly, in the words of our Savior himself, the prince of this world cometh, but hath nothing in me. That's in John's gospel. That's toward the end of his life, when the devil came against Christ with the greatest ferocity, and there was nothing in Christ. That's what he said, he hath nothing in me. There was nothing in Christ that responded to Satan. It was true in his temptations in the wilderness. You know the three, well, actually he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then three final massive temptations came, but turning the stones into bread and, and throwing himself over the temple and all these temptations. But in, in not one instance was there anything in Christ that responded to those temptations. Now, what was that all about? That was to prove that Jesus Christ had a humanity that while it was like ours, it was the same as ours in constitution, it was not a sinful humanity. It was one that was only made in the likeness of our humanity, our sinful humanity, but in Jesus Christ there was no sin, not even the propensity to sin, not even the inclination to sin, not even any response to sin or temptation. And so, that's what it's saying in Hebrews 4.15. And those words, apart from sin, can be read this way, sin accepted. In other words, all the temptations that came, the Lord Jesus Christ did not respond to them. Therefore, it was proved that he had a sinless humanity. That's the second thing. Turn back to Romans chapter 8 here. We've seen ascending, we've seen a sinlessness. But then notice the next two words in verse 3. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And for sin. Here we have a sacrifice. And I want you to think with me about those two words. That little phrase, for sin. That phrase is a vital part of Paul's entire teaching here in these verses. The words do not merely mean concerning sin or with respect to sin. They signify much more than that. The original Greek signifies this, by a sacrifice for sin. Notice how the whole verse reads. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sacrifice for sin. That's the meaning of the words, for sin. Now, I should have asked you to stay in Hebrews. I want you to go back there with me. Go back to Hebrews 10, or go back to Hebrews and turn to chapter 10, please, and verse number 6. Hebrews 10, verse number 6. And this verse reads this way, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Now, do you notice that in this verse, and this is actually talking about the Lord again, 
coming into the world. These are actually the words of Jesus Christ as He came into the world. If you go back into verse number 5, just read that verse with me, Hebrews 10, 5. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body or a humanity hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, the Lord continues to speak at His coming into the world. He's quoting from Psalm 40, thou hast had no pleasure. But notice that you've got the same phrase in this verse 6. For sin. For sin. Notice as well that you have the word sacrifices in verse number 6. But it's in italics. And so it's the same uh, as we have in Romans 8 and verse number 3, the same construction. For sin. But the word sacrifices is supplied here. Why? Because in the original language there's this same thought that the Lord Jesus Christ came not to offer up animal sacrifices and burnt offerings of that kind, but He did come to offer sacrifice. And that's the sense of those words. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, that's why the word sacrifices is actually supplied by the translators, to give the to give the clear view and the clear understanding that that's what the phrase for sin actually means. It means to be a sacrifice for sin. So take that into your minds and go back, please, to Romans chapter 8, because we're looking here at these different views of the Lord and His incarnation. He's sent and He's sinless and He comes to make a sacrifice. That's the sense of the language. In fact, if you've got a marginal Bible, you will find that uh, with regard to verse number 3 here where it says for sin, the margin will actually tell you uh, in these words a sacrifice for sin. It's there in the margin. So it's very, very clear. So why, why is this so important? Because Paul is spelling out in the clearest terms that in the sending of Christ, and in the sinlessness of Christ, he was qualified to deal with sin. He was qualified to be the sacrifice that is required in order for sin to be dealt with. And of course, a, 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 being a true sacrifice for sin was the Lord's great purpose in coming into the world. The whole of the Old Testament set that forth over and over again. The Messiah will come. The Lord promised. The Lord predicted. He will be born of the Virgin, He said, through Isaiah. He'll be born in Bethlehem, as He said through Mike, as we saw last Sunday morning. The Lord said all these things in the Old Testament. But He also made it absolutely clear that the Messiah was coming to die that He was coming to make Himself that one sacrifice for sin that would deal with sin and would therefore deal with our inability to acquire uh, righteousness before God through our own efforts because we can't do it, can we? And so the Lord has come and He came therefore to give Himself as that one sacrifice that deals with sin and that puts away sin forever. If you go on here in Romans chapter 8, you notice in the fourth place, His suffering. And that's seen at the end of verse number 3, where you have these words, condemned sin in the flesh. That's Christ's flesh. That's Christ's humanity. And so the Father sent Him 
God sending his own Son in the likeness of our humanity, but without our sin. That is, he had no sinful nature, he had no sinful uh, leaning towards sin whatsoever. But he came to be the sacrifice for sin, and when he came, then sin was dealt with. The word for condemned in the end of verse number 3, where it says condemned sin in the flesh, means judged. Sin was judged. Sin was dealt with. My dear friend, that should thrill your soul. Because, as I've already said, you are nothing but a sinner saved by grace. You still do sin. And you will until the day you die or the Lord comes first. And you're tempted to sin and you struggle with sin, even as a child of God, and you know that. But at the same time, you can say this, in the words of that great hymn, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. The word condemned here means judged. Christ was judged. In our humanity, he came, no sin of his own. In him there was no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. We sum it up this way. He could not sin, and yet he was judged. Why? Because he bore our sins in his own body to the tree. And as the just, he suffered for the unjust. He came under the stroke and he died, making the great atonement and satisfying divine justice. He became the guilty one, and then he was condemned under the guilt of our sin. And the judgment of a holy law fell upon him, both body and soul, and he endured that entire penal suffering. That's what Paul is saying here. God condemned sin in the flesh, in the humanity of his own Son. And you'll notice how this whole passage flows. If you go back to verse number one, just look at it. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in or which are in Christ Jesus. It's the very same word, only it's a noun here. No condemnation. In verse 3, you've got the verb, condemned. But both mean, mean judgment. The child of God is no longer under judgment. Verse 1 is telling you. There's no judgment due to the child of God. And the child of God is characterized as a person who walks not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, an individual whom the Lord has done a work, who demonstrates the evidence of a new life, no longer walking, walking according to the flesh, but endeavoring to walk according to the Spirit. That person's sin, Paul is teaching down these verses, was judged in Christ, condemned in Christ. And for that reason alone, there's no condemnation of the believer. And we rejoice in that. If we don't rejoice in that, there's nothing else to rejoice in. 
that our sin was judged in Christ. God the Father condemned, judged sin in His Son. That's the remarkable essence of these words where it says condemn sin in the flesh. That's God's condemnation. That's divine judgment. But He dealt with sin in the flesh, the humanity of His own blessed Son, namely in the sufferings that the Lord felt and endured as He hung on that middle tree. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the suffering of Jesus Christ involved real penal judgment. Christ was judged. Judged for you. Judged for your iniquity. Think of all the sins that over your lifetime have accrued to your name, to your account. Sins of which you're embarrassed, ashamed, secret sins, public sins, whatever, inward sins, outward sins. Christ took them all. He bore the whole load. And in doing so, He bore the curse that was due to your sin. And in doing that, He removed the guilt remove the guilt. No condemnation is mine, the hymn says. It goes on to say that the Lord Jesus took it all and bore it in that wonderful hymn. And so, there is a suffering. And then move on to verse 4 and you see the satisfaction. It says, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. And We've come full circle, really, because I started out today by saying that in this passage, Paul has an objective, that is, that the law must, uh, or he mentions an objective, that is, that the law must be given perfect obedience, but there's an obstruction, that is, our lost estate, our inability to keep that law, that stands in the way of a sinner being saved. But we come now to see this wonderful statement that the righteousness of the law, the judgment of the law, or sorry, the requirement of the law, remember that, that's what the word righteousness means, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Think again about those last two words, in us. Do, you, do, do they strike you the way I'd like them to strike you? In what way has the righteousness of the law been fulfilled in us? It can be read this way, by us. What does that mean? It just doesn't simply say that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled. But Paul says, by us. Well, here is where we have again that wonderful truth that undergirds the whole gospel, the truth of union with Christ. And when you get a hold of this, Christian, I want you to understand this morning, if you've never understood it before, how God sees you. And what do I mean? Union with Jesus Christ means that, well, it means an awful lot, but whenever the Lord was born and lived His perfect life, 
he did it for you as one of his people. He fulfilled the law for you. Um, and that's part of the whole redemptive work of Christ. That's part of his vicarious work for us. He actually obeyed the law for you. But when he went to the cross, then he dealt with the law's penalty. And he dealt with that penalty for you. But here's the point. The Lord wasn't born without you in mind. He did not live without you in mind. He did not die without you in mind. He did not rise without you in mind. He did not go back to heaven without you in mind. The Lord did none of those things in isolation from his people. The whole way through, he was born for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He ascended for us. And that means that when God looks on you as one of his people, if you are one of his, he sees somebody who was in union with Christ when Christ was on the tree. Just focus your minds now on the Lord's sacrifice and suffering. When the Lord was on the tree, God saw you there. That means that from that um, legal point of view, because of your union with Jesus Christ, when Christ suffered the stroke of the law, you suffered it in your representative. And our minds need to dwell on that because that is not something that is uh, going to come easily to our finite minds, to our puny little brains. But that's at best what we have. But it's a truth. Jesus Christ on that cross. And here's the point. He wasn't suffering for any sins of his own because he had none. None whatsoever. He's there suffering for our sins. And God sees us in Christ on that cross because we were united with him. You might say, how can you prove that? Well, just turn back to Romans 6 and see it. Romans chapter 6. Verse 5, sorry, verse number 6, knowing this, Romans 6, 6, our old man is crucified with him. It literally reads, our old man was crucified with him. You were crucified with Christ from that legal perspective because you were given to Christ if you're a child of God if you're a true believer, you are one of God's elect. Let us nail it down. You're one of God's elect. And when Christ was on the tree, he saw the whole company of the elect in his son, united with his son, dying in his son, in the sense of Christ their representative, bearing the guilt, the condemnation, and they in him bearing it and suffering for it. So that means that when God looks on the Christian, what does he see? I'm answering the question now. He sees a person who in his or her representative actually died under the stroke of the law. Just as much as when God looks upon a true believer, he sees a person who gave obedience to the law because of being in union with Christ's life. 
This is why Paul also writes in Ephesians that we're risen with him and we're seated with him in heavenly places. Now, you're sitting in those chairs right now. I'm not being facetious here. You're sitting in those chairs. But remember something. God sees you in his Son. Sitting in heaven at this moment, as good as there, he sees you glorified, he sees you accepted, all of these different aspects of our experience in Christ, they're all seen by God. That's why Paul wrote, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, and whom he did predestinate, then he also called, justified, glorified. That's past tense. That's how God sees you. Why? How? The sending, the sinlessness, the sacrifice, the suffering, and the satisfaction that Christ has made to the law. That's why. And therefore, our hearts can rejoice today as we think about that blessed child. And we sing the little carols, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head, and it's all true. But he's not there anymore. So we don't stay at the crib or the cross. We go to the throne above where he now is in all his majesty and glory and we rejoice in what we are and what we have in him. Let us bow in prayer. Time is gone. And we'll just commit our way to the Lord and may God's word live on in our souls this day and be used by the Spirit to stir us up. Lord, we give thee thanks for all that Christ has to us, these views of him that we have noted in these wonderful verses. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt write thy word in our hearts and bless it to us. Help us to go away with a holy awe over our souls, with a true understanding of those things that are eternal and that are centered in Christ. Lord, may we be delivered more and more from our own focus on ourselves. Lord, we focus on us, on the inward man, and we will go away in despair. But we thank Thee that when we look at Christ, we can go away rejoicing. Lord, may Your people grasp this. May they understand this. And may they live in the enjoyment of it. Be with us now, we pray, and bless right on into the morning meeting and come down in power. Tabernacle with us. We ask all this in the Savior's name and for His glory. Amen.